0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
1: Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into this week's Spiked podcast, I just wanted to thank everyone who is currently donating to Spiked. Whether you've made a one-off donation or give monthly, it's thanks to your support that we're able to produce our challenging and fearless journalism. If you haven't donated, then why not get started today? It may not seem like much, but just £5 per month can have a transformative impact on our work, helping us to challenge the authoritarian climate we now find ourselves in. It's really easy to donate. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever we have Spiked Deputy Editor Tom Slater Hello, and Spiked Columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Trump and the coronavirus, pub closures and woke supermarkets.
0: The president today declared himself cured. I feel great. I feel like perfect. So I think this was the blessing from God that I caught the it. The White House outbreak could have potentially exposed thousands of people to the virus through these rallies, events and meetings in recent days. He has to remember, though, that his words weigh a ton as president of the United States.
1: A defiant Donald Trump returned from hospital to the White House on Wednesday, less than a week after testing positive for COVID-19. The president described his experience of the virus as a blessing from God, claiming he had been cured by an experimental cocktail of drugs. He implored Americans not to let COVID dominate their lives. For Trump's critics, the outbreak at the White House was symptomatic of his apparently reckless approach to the pandemic, which, according to official figures, has now killed 210,000 Americans. Trump has questioned the utility of lockdowns and masks. He's downplayed the lethality of the virus and on many occasions has even pushed his own ideas about how to treat it with unproven drugs like hydroxychloroquine. That, for his critics, means he is ignoring the science. Tom, what have your thoughts been this week?
2: As again, it's been an absolute circus. And I think as is so often the case during the Trump presidency, it's a circus that's only part of Trump's making. So of course, there were all of these confusions when he was first taken ill about the timeline, about his actual health, about whether or not he was on oxygen, as well as this kind of theatre of him returning to the White House in the helicopter, walking up the South Portico, all the rest of it. A lot of that has hardly been edifying, but then the response has been positively unhinged. I think you only really have to look at the discussion about his um, drive-by, as it's been called. I don't know why, but um, as it's been discussed <laughs> when he got in his armoured vehicle with the Secret Service to go and um, wave rather than gun down his supporters who were gathered outside. People are talking about this as if he had fundamentally put people at risk. This, is despite the fact, as a lot of people pointed out, you know, the Secret Service men—they were in full PP, they were in gowns and goggles. And yet this was presented as something as if he was almost purposely coughing on them. And uh, this is something that Amber Athey pointed out on Spectator US. This was something that was cleared by his medical team at Walter Reed. They said it was... Okay, of appropriate restrictions and a a former White House physician who worked for Clinton and Bush said the risk of it was very, very small. But again, we saw this kind of presentation of it as if this is everything that's wrong with Trump. He's even got the coronavirus and is inflicting it on other people. Again, you saw a very similar reaction when he um, got back to the White House, walked up the steps of the South Portico, very dramatically kind of took off his mask. and again, it being discussed as if it was another potential super spreader event, despite the fact he was 30 feet away from anyone at the time of this going on. So I think, what, again, what it reminds us, there's a lot of justified criticism of Trump on all kinds of issues, not least his handling of the coronavirus, which at best you can say has been erratic. But I think this reaction has again demonstrated how much his critics just completely overshoot this and even as Brendan wrote about on Spites in the past week the kind of semi-biblical way in which they've been discussing him being struck down with Covid the idea that it was almost kind of divine punishment for him and even a kind of plague that had been inflicted on land as a result of his presidency so once again on the one hand you do have Trump turning things into a bit of a circus engaging in what is sometimes quite absurd theatre but to my mind the response to it has been so incredibly unhinged.
1: Well, I I got the impression from Trump's critics that not only did he did they think it was irresponsible that he was doing this drive by, irresponsible obviously not having kind of measures in place in the White House for there to have been such an outbreak, all of that kind of stuff where, you know, there's I think there's a bit of legitimate debate there. But they seem to think it was irresponsible for him to have recovered from the coronavirus at all you know that in and of itself seemed to send the wrong message about the deadly virus you know that would signal to people that they're not in danger and not need to stay at home and not need to wear their masks etc cetera, etc cetera, which is you know obviously completely unhinged but you know if you think about it i mean trump has said some real rubbish about the virus you know he did say that it's not as deadly as flu which is which is complete nonsense but still at the end of the day it's it's no great surprise that he survived it i mean there's obviously a huge amount of debate about the infection fatality rate, and it's going to be different in different settings, in different countries. It's going to be different for different people. But it is true to say that the vast majority of people who get coronavirus are not going to die from it. 80% of people probably won't even get symptoms from it. That doesn't mean it doesn't kill people. That doesn't mean that it doesn't make people horribly ill, like we saw with Boris Johnson, another world leader who caught the virus. But I think there is this kind of disconnect and, and difficulty what pe- I think people have this difficulty getting their heads around the fact that as a, at an individual level the risk is pretty low for most people although because it's so contagious the risk is obviously very high at a population level hence the number of deaths that we've seen I don't think it should that should be that difficult to discuss I don't think it be it should be that difficult to talk about in terms of people's individual risks to this. But it now seems to be a kind of heresy to suggest anything of the sort that, you, you know, you somehow don't take this virus seriously or, you know, you want people to die if you if you have these quite rational conversations about it. Ella?
3: Well, like with many things with Trump, nothing's ever straightforward. And the like you said, Fraser, some of what he says is absolutely, it, just factually inaccurate. So, you know, his comparison with coronavirus, with flu, um as Brendan pointed out in his column this week has been proven by you know John Hopkins University and others to that it isn't the case that flu is more lethal than COVID and it's a problem that one of the most powerful political leaders in the world is saying that it's you know it's just a a pretty simple thing that he could get right at this point it seems like it's deliberate him doing that kind of thing and that's an issue but then there are other things that he's said, which people have almost become more upset about, and um, which are actually true. So there was this huge furore over him saying, you know, don't let it take over your lives. Don't let it make you live in fear, which was actually, you know, from any other person would have been construed as a positive message. We're living in fearful times and world leader saying, you know, I got through it we can get through it. Don't let it take over you and make you agoraphobic and make you feel socially isolated. And all that that was behind his message would have been what you would expect from someone taking a lead. The problem is it comes from Trump. Tom called it a circus. I mean, that's right. He engages in the most absurd pantomime time and again. But this is a strategy. I mean, the pantomime has to have an audience. And, boy, does it have an audience? And the problem is that people keep reacting, the Democrats and others keep reacting in almost a more absurd way to his antics. And so the spotlight is constantly on Trump. I mean, it is a big deal that he got coronavirus. It's a big deal that he recovered. But what is a speedy recovery and you might expect to then get back to the business of dealing with this virus has now turned into a spiralling news story that we keep focusing on. You know, it's always a difficult one with Trump because he should be being statements like, he should be being, you know, accurate. He should be all of these things, but he's not. But instead of just moving on and saying, okay, he's not, let's get down to politics. People keep playing into his hands and it's incredibly frustrating.
2: Tom? No, there's definitely been so much pantomime on both sides, because again, since Trump got ill, there's been a lot of criticism of how we kind of mocked Joe Biden for wearing his mask so much at the first presidential debate. And yet again, whilst there's so much that Trump is trying to turn this into as part of the kind of Trump show, still, you can't get away from the fact that Biden is engaged in very similar tactics in relation to the coronavirus thing. You know, giving speeches while wearing a mask, wearing it very ostentatiously. Trump's not the only one trying to play politics with this very serious issue. And I think it's just going to be interesting how this kind of pans out because, as Ella says, you know, the pantomime needs an audience. But at the same time, in terms of the audience of the media, it's sending the Democratic leaning press insane, as is always the case. But the question of how this is going to impact on voters is seemingly at the moment only negative. I mean, by most estimations Trump poll ratings have taken a huge dive in recent weeks, partly off the back of his very unedifying performance at the debates but also on top of that his contraction of Covid and potentially some of his reactions to that since obviously you can't really count him out we've been here before with the polls etc but it does seem that a lot of voters are responding quite negatively and being reminded of Trump's very real failings in relation to something like coronavirus rather than Russia or the idea he's a white supremacist, all the stuff that kind of tends to preoccupy uh, the press most of the time. So, uh, you know, you could easily say that he does deserve to lose. But on the other hand, and I think we've been reminded of it this week, the Democratic establishment definitely doesn't deserve to win this election. And if anything, I'm quite concerned that Trump kind of collapsing and Joe Biden you know, heralding his return to normalcy would be treated as a vindication of a ruling class which over the past four years as they've been in sort of semi-exile have proven themselves to be absolutely nuts, incredibly irrational, incredibly conspiratorial, just in a more acceptable way. You know, we had Russiagate previously in the past week. We've even had serving democratic politicians indulging this idea that potentially Trump isn't ill, which is also a conviction shared by the Q and onset for slightly different reasons. There's all of this which has kind of been going on. You know, a democratic establishment that's been demanding and delighting the fact that Silicon Valley have once again been editing and censoring the comments of a democratically elected president. And in the background, an issue which Trump, if he was a lot smarter, could have made much more hail out of in recent weeks, this establishment which has really indulged in this increasingly divisive identity politics in recent times, which despite Biden's kind of triangulation on this issue, seems to be something which is very much embedded in their pitch. So again, it's one of those things where America is presented with a bit of a tragic choice. And whilst there's so much you can criticise Donald Trump over, the concern is that that return to normalcy such as it is, is actually just going to be a vindication of a set of people who over the past few years have demonstrated perfectly why they were rejected in the first place, because of how distant irrational, and as we've seen more so in recent years, even conspiratorial, a lot of these people are.
1: You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. I hope you're enjoying it so far. I just wanted to take a moment to let you know about all the other podcasts we're producing at Spiked. So as well as your weekly Spiked Podcast that you're listening to now, we also have The Brendan O'Neill Show an interview podcast hosted by Spikes editor Brendan O'Neill. In recent episodes, he's discussed Big Tech's war on free speech with Jeffrey Rosen, president of the National Constitution Centre, and historian Thomas Frank talks about the history of populism and the elite war on democracy. Then we have culture wars with Andrew Doyle. Andrew is a comedian and spiked columnist. And in the latest episode, he spoke to fellow stand ups Jeff Norcott and Simon Evans about institutional wokeness in the comedy industry. And finally, we have Last Orders. In the latest episode, James Dellingpole joins Chris Snowden and Tom Slater to oppose the latest lockdown measures. So once you've finished the Spike podcast, why not check out The Brendan O'Neill Show, Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle, and Last Orders? Now, Back to the Spike podcast. Scotland has introduced a raft of new lockdown restrictions, including a ban on alcohol sales in indoor venues, while pubs and restaurants in central Scotland will be closed entirely. The UK government is expecting to follow suit in the worst affected parts of England. The news is yet another hammer blow to a struggling hospitality industry, which not only had to close venues throughout the first lockdown, but for the past few weeks has been put under a 10pm curfew and various other restrictions. The hospitality industry expects the COVID restrictions to cause nearly 12,000 bars and pubs to close permanently, putting nearly 300,000 jobs at risk. Ella, what are your thoughts on this?
3: This is really quite remarkable because unlike other measures some of the other restrictions have been put in, you can sort of see, even though they're frustrating, you can understand why they're being put in. You know, the the rule of six, for example, however frustrating and arbitrary it might be, the the reasoning behind it is that too many people mixing the virus spreads. But with the focus on pubs, there really feels like there is absolutely no sort of evidence basis or scientific reasoning behind this. It is just pure... Politics and it's really dangerous. I mean, we've been sort of taking the piss out of the fact that pubs are being shut early. Across the media and elsewhere, there's been a huge amount of mic taking because it meant that people are spilling out into the streets at 10 o'clock. Anecdotally, almost everyone is talking about the fact that when young people aren't allowed to go to the pub, they go back home and drink at home in far larger numbers than they would be sat at a manically sanitized you know pub table with masks on so it just in terms of cold hard logic this seems ridiculous and it's quite clear to most people that in particular nicola sturgeon has positioned herself as a politician who is always going to go that one step extra she's kind of engaging continuously in one-upmanship with boris johnson and as you said fraser it it's going to have some very real consequences Everyone seems to be being panicking about young people all the time. It's young people, the students we talked about last week, or young people spreading the virus, or young people feeling mentally ill. And most people who work in the hospitality industry are young people. So if the government was that worried about them, they wouldn't be doing this kind of thing. It's just incredibly frustrating because if you want to get a public behind you in terms of strategizing around how to stop the virus killing people, doing these kind of you know really quite punitive and you know policies that you just really can't trust and you feel cynical about is only going to turn public sentiment the wrong way you know the government should be trying to build some sense of social solidarity around it a some sense of like we're in this together especially if we're going to be in this together for what six months or however much longer it is and instead wrecking the last bit of people's lives, you know, going to the pub for one hour after work before they call last orders at 9.30 or whatever (laughs) it is, is—is just going to make us even more miserable. And that's actually a really important point. It's not flippant. Closing down the pubs isn't just, you know, a nuisance for semi-alcoholics as some people are characterizing it. For many areas, they are fundamental parts of communities where people can socialize. So this is a really big problem.
1: Well, the problem is, I guess, that so much of our social lives has just been deemed completely non essential. You know, so obviously there's a lot of outbreaks at universities at the moment, and that seems to actually be what's driving a lot of the rise, while the spread in pubs and bars and restaurants has been completely minimal you know green king for instance said that only one percent of its pubs has been contacted by nhs test and trace they're the biggest pub owners in the country so that gives you a good idea of you know how significant this is in pubs but at the same time because our social lives are deemed so unimportant they can basically be you know Crushed at the, at the stroke of a pen, and yeah, as you say, our social lives are not just about drinking, and it's not it's not frivolous. It's about also about community. It's about the kind of human connections that we need to live a normal and fulfilling life. Tom, your thoughts? I think once
2: again, we're just being shown how the calculation the government seems to constantly make is that the failure of their policies becomes vindication of their policies and the need to double down on them. We've seen this time and again recently and I think we're seeing it with the calls for more stringent local lockdowns as well as more talk of national measures potentially, which is in response to these measures on a local level just failing. I mean, Keir Starmer of all people pointed out this week that 19 out of 20 of the areas in England that have been under these localised restrictions for two months have seen an increase in infections. We've known this for a while now. The Guardian published analysis last week pointing out that COVID cases have doubled under most local lockdowns. And yet the response to this is that the lockdowns weren't strict enough. They might have an argument for that, but I haven't seen anything convincing to explain that, especially when you look on the broad stroke, as Carl Hennigan's pointed out, as we've highlighted many times on spikes, the epidemic in this country peaked two weeks after the lockdown came in. This was not nearly enough time for those measures to have really supposedly taken effect. And yet we carry on As we are, and again all the time, Sweden showing a different way. I mean, it seems like the government is doing this. Even the Scottish government, despite their very pre-existing authoritarian bent, because they think—and I stress, think—that they've got public opinion on their side. But I think it's really important that we continue to call that into question. Um, Not only because I think, as has been quite clear from various bits of evidence, the public are more or less kind of saying one thing to pollsters and doing something very different in relation to their own lives and their socialising and even following quarantine rules, which are far more serious than you know not going round someone's house when there's no suspicion that any of you might have it it's also worth pointing out that public opinion is shifting whilst most people still want to prioritize health over the economy which i think you can easily take as a kind of again as a kind of reflection of how people feel about these um, restrictions the gap between those two things has halved over the course of the recent period and i think it's also important to point out that again we're kind of cushioned from some of the worst impacts of this so far you know again if we're going into lockdown in autumn you know looking out the window at the moment it's very damp very dank weather that we're experiencing at the moment and given the fact that the kind of national furlough schemes and those kinds of generous things aren't going to exist it's going to feel very different over the course of the next few months. And I think the reason that the government fails to recognise that public opinion is not actually the perfect snapshot <laughs> that it is, that it is under very unique conditions where the public are very atomized, where they're being fed a lot of fear-mongering propaganda, the fact that they don't recognise that things are shifting, and the fact that they don't feel that they can really lead, that they just have to keep carrying on down these dead ends, is because of this kind of contradiction with the Tories in particular, which is that they did have this very enthusiastic democratic pro-Brexit mandate. But at the same time, they're very detached from ordinary people in their everyday lives. That's why they're so reliant on focus groups and on polling, because they have none of that kind of direct experience. And I think that's one thing that we're going to be trapped in. They're not only trapped by what feels like a quite deadening consensus amongst their advisors as the way to go forward, but also I think they've convinced themselves that their way of going about things is precisely what the public wants and they need to just blindly following it, rather than actually trying to recognise where people actually are, and then also to lead. Um, and I think it's, it points to one, that kind of core contradiction in the, in the Tory government. They are actually quite detached from the people who they deign to represent, which is part of the reason why they're carrying on down this path.
3: Ella? I do keep thinking the only thing we're really allowed to do at the moment is work. It's quite a serious point, you know. You, in so many of the restrictions, as Fraser said, have meant that you can't have fun, you can't socialise, can't go out drinking, you can't go out to listen to music. You know, you can't go to the theatre. Whatever it is, it's pretty much we're heading, as Tom says, into a dark, dank winter, with lots of people still working from home, having basically only that as the main thing that's happening in their life that's going to have quite a serious effect on people you know and quite often on spiked i and others have written about the fact that mental health for a long time has been something that's sort of fetishized and blown into this very woolly thing that can cover everything from feeling just a little bit low to very serious mental health issues but now that we've been months in a pandemic and under restrictions and people have been quite literally forced to be on their own for a very long time we're going to have to start taking all these things very seriously because people don't have the option to, as it were, cure themselves, you know, to make themselves feel better because you can't go out and do the things that you would be able to make yourself feel better. Um, And then the other point is that Tom's talked about the fact that we have to keep calling into question the idea of public opinion and this sort of reliance on polling and the fact that you kind of can't really get a full grasp on what people really think. And it's also, I'm conscious of all, always thinking that it's very difficult to say that you know what the right way to go about this is. You know, the, looking at the data and the numbers is very confusing and there's a huge amount of fear-mongering going around. But there was a paper brought out this week by researchers at Edinburgh University that looked at the way in which modelling had been done previously in relation to lockdown and looked at the the effects of lockdown and it's basically come out and said, look, this process of continual lockdowns, whether they be regional or in certain areas or wherever it is, or you know, locking down pubs to stop young people, just isn't working. And actually, the most crucial thing that they say is that in the long term, now that this is no longer a pandemic, but that it's going to be a virus that's endemic, that's going to be with us, the people who die from it, the old and the vulnerable, are going to come out of this worse. Because the real thing that we have to get back to, this paper suggests, is the question of herd immunity. And so actually, There is an argument for saying, leave the pubs open and let the virus spread through young people who might just get sick from it and spend society's resources and time and energy on not just shielding those people who need to be shielded, but making sure they are shielded and have good lives. So don't lock them up in care homes, but make sure they have the resources to ride this out safely using the word herd immunity now is like you know we've said this before it's like saying that you kind of want the virus to run rampant and 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 murder everyone it's an evil thing to say but more and more scientists more and more data is coming out to show that this process just isn't working so just because the government nicola sturgeon or boris johnson says it so you know you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say well maybe they're not right we have to keep calling that into question
1: You're listening to the Spiked podcast. It's Fraser here with another quick reminder, if you haven't already, to consider giving Spiked a donation. All of our content is free and we want to keep it free so we can spread our pro-liberty, pro-democracy message as wide as possible. But we can only do that with your support. If you'd like to make a donation, it's easy. Just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the show. The supermarket chain Sainsbury's has gone woke. As part of its plan to celebrate Black History Month, Sainsbury's has pledged to offer a safe space to its black workers to gather in response to the Black Lives Matter movement. It also, seemingly out of nowhere, told shoppers who do not want to shop with an inclusive retailer that they're welcome to shop elsewhere. Its Twitter account now seems to spend a lot of time responding to randomers on the internet complaining about the lack of a white history month. Tom, what the hell is going on here?
2: Very, very weird. I think it does speak to the moment that we're living in, this kind of politicisation of everything, the culture war just engulfing all areas of life that even like a supermarket whose job is to sell you know yoghurt and cabbages and frozen pizzas feels, feels the need to kind of express its fealty to this new woke religion. Very, very strange. As you say, you know, celebrating Black History Month in and of itself is obviously no bad thing, but they did go further. They went really down this kind of identitarian line, even, as you say, kind of admonishing anyone who criticised them for their safe space for black workers, which was hastily redefined as an online support group, which was kind of interesting. And again, just kind of arguing with people on on Twitter as if anyone who took issue with this pretty obvious piece of vapid virtue signalling were just racists who could keep their money, really. I think the fact that they really put themselves out there in this way was really, really quite interesting. But again, this is of a piece with what we've seen a lot recently, the rise of this kind of woke capitalism, which on the one hand is in, is incredibly vapid, but also incredibly hypocritical. You know, as you've written about previously, Fraser, some of the companies like Nike and Apple, who were banging on with so much about the Black Lives Matter movement in, mm. in recent weeks. You know, they've been implicated in forced labour practices in China and Sainsbury's. You know, it's offering its safe spaces to its black workers, but it's still battling with workers on... Paying conditions is something Matt Goodwin pointed out over the weekend on Twitter. You know, in 2018, they tried to give their chief executive a £1 million pay rise whilst cutting the pay of 9,000 staff members. So on the one hand, it's really quite flimsy. But again, at the same time, I think it's important to stress that this seems to go beyond just kind of woke washing. A lot of these companies really do seem to buy into this. And I think it just speaks to the strength of this new ideology that even people who really should be keeping out of politics, because as Michael Jordan once put it, even Republicans buy sneakers, you still still feel the pull of this stuff, still feel the need to, again, kind of get involved in it. And um, yes, I think the, the battle over Sainsbury's is probably just the most recent and risible example of all of that.
3: Ella? It's also so shallow. I mean, I was in uh, went into John Lewis the other day, and there was a big placard that said, to celebrate Black History Month, We're offering buy one, get one free on cappuccinos in the place to eat. Most of the thinking, is that is that for black customers only? Or are you just trying to sell coffees or is the place to eat going under? It was so bizarre. And it's that kind of kind of realization that lots of people don't seem to be able to grasp. That for the most part, whether it's Sainsbury's or John Lewis or Ben and Jerry's, all of these companies, they're main priority is to sell you things. And so if they think they can sell you more things on the basis of being woke or tapping into, you know, whatever the Twitter trend is politically at the moment, then they're going to do that. This is like PR 101. You can laugh at it, but it's also the the more kind of serious and negative side of it is that this completely empties out politics of it, you know, its status isn't a very important thing. It just means that we're what we're kind of looking to capitalists to give us the way to and the instruction on how to think politically. From any kind of left wing perspective, it's it's sickening that, that people don't realise this. And Tom pointed out that there's kind of double standards. People also seem to forget that these companies are not set up to be organizations that strive for equality or that are on the workers' side. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but one of the best examples is the Tate bleating about how diverse it is in relation to the Turner Prize at the same time as moving to sack so many of its workers who put the mugs and the prints of their widely diverse range of artists into the shop. So at the end of the day, these are bosses and capitalists who don't care about the makeup of their workforce, but want to make money. And if they're doing that on the basis of engaging in bad faith pretense with politics, then you're a fool if you fall for it.
1: I mean, I think it is a combination of the two things, obviously, the the desire to make money and quite a sincere belief in a lot of these woke ideals. Because I mean, the thing is, they are incredibly cheap. First of all, they often actually, you know, undermine any kind of claim towards class solidarity. I think they're incredibly useful off the shelf ideas for capitalists or anyone, you know, mm. anyone in the kind of upper echelons of society to to gravitate towards and feel virtuous at the same time. I think it's interesting thinking about supermarkets. I mean, obviously the Black Lives Matter protests caused a lot of rows over various supermarket products. So we've seen, you know, Uncle Ben's rice has now been changed to Ben's original. Eskimo pie has become polar pie. Aunt Jemima pancake mix is going to be retired and replaced. They haven't yet come up with a, a new name and logo. So maybe that one's a bit more expensive. Have to go through a lot of focus groups, probably. And one of my favorite examples was Lego no longer marketing its. Police play sets basically after the wake of George Floyd, because now suddenly the police, as an idea in and of themselves, uh, are obviously racist and, and unacceptable for kind of children to play with. So it's really strange because obviously hardly anyone is really calling for these changes and mm. and anyone who is serious about tackling racism understands that these things are entirely cosmetic and yet you have all these brands falling over themselves to be you know to to prostrate themselves in public to say we will do better in future and yet yeah, it is just quite sickening.
2: No, it's interesting because as you say, it is entirely cosmetic. And yet, even though a lot of these moves aren't necessarily demanded, apart from the really absurd ones, you know, Lego, et cetera, they are kind of applauded <laughs> when they do take place or certainly defended from mm. criticism And um, whenever people get their backs up in response to it. And I think a lot of that points to a point that you both have gestured to as well, which is that... The reason these companies go for this wokeness stuff is because it's very easy for them to go for it. It does cost them nothing. And that's the thing about identity politics, about wokeness, the thing that does distinguish it from genuinely progressive left-wing movements in the past is that it's kind of uninterested in genuine material conditions, you know, the Mm. economic structures, the laws which seek to restrain people's potential and to oppress and exploit them. It's fundamentally interested in something kind of more abstract, immaterial and kind of spiritual. If you think about all the things that we're demanded to do, we're demanded to celebrate diversity, acknowledge historical wrongs, you know, check our privilege. All of this is talk, At the end of the day. And the thing about talk is that it's cheap. So it's obvious why companies would gravitate towards it because it is a way that they can appear virtuous. It doesn't on balance seem to hit the bottom line that much because fundamentally, I don't think people really care about what a supermarket, what stand it takes on particular issues, although that might be beginning to change. But fundamentally, this stuff makes no difference. And even though a lot of this politics is incredibly divisive and the social consequences of it have been pretty horrendous to witness as it has exploded In recent months fundamentally it it does nothing in so many ways and i think that's part of the reason as you both have said why these companies are so willing to embrace it
1: thanks for listening to the spike podcast we'll be back next week if you enjoyed the show why not check out some of spike's other podcasts in the meantime We have The Brendan O'Neill Show, in which Spiked's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars, hosted by Spiked columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Order's a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state, and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.
0: Selling a little, or a lot...